This week on the Pre-Roll Podcast, we're joined by Kelly Robinson. She's the founder of the Kelly Robinson team, uh, best-in-class realtor in New York City, uh, top 1.5% last 15, 20 years running. If you, you want to get some insights into the core things and some of the core resources that have kept her in that top 1.5%, give the show a listen. She's got great insights focused on the individual's not on the individual deal. Some uh, great advice that's, I think, really helped set her apart and uh, a great journey ahead of her. She'll be expanding to Miami and Dubai. A lot to talk about. It's a great episode. Kelly Robinson from the Kelly Robinson team. Check it out. Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We have a treat for you this week. We're joined by Kelly Robinson. So Kelly is the founder of the Kelly Robinson team over at Compass, uh, always exciting for us when we can have professionals that are operating at the level Kelly and her team are operating at. She's, since 2005, I believe, been top performer um, in New York City real estate. We're going to get into some neat expansion plans. If if you're looking for a pro of pros, it's always great to be able to pull information and glean uh, different data points from how the best of the best are doing it. And Kelly certainly is embodying that. So Kelly, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's our pleasure. So let's let's jump right in. New York City real estate. Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about the overall market. Uh, we've heard a lot about the decentralization and the market is changing. Uh, we've heard a lot about COVID and the impact. What are you seeing on the ground uh, as far as the realities in New York City? Where are we? If you can give us a snapshot, where are we today? And then we can get into interest rates and where we think we'll be tomorrow. So COVID had a huge impact back when it happened and people all scattered out of the city and our market was in the dumps while everybody else was soaring outside of the city. Um, a lot of those people who moved out missed the culture and the energy of New York City. So some of them are moving back in full time, but many of them want at least a piece of New York City, which means they're purchasing pied-à-terres. Um, and so that is a big part of our market. You do have a lot of tech companies that have been moving from the West Coast to New York City, and you've got a lot of people at tech companies, young people buying two and three million dollar homes, um, moving here. You've got a lot of people buying homes for their children who are graduating from college or in college. And, you know, you've got a lot of people who want to stay in the city who are expanding their families or what have you who are upgrading. And um, then there are investors because if you've got cash and you've got a property with low monthlies, you can do pretty well with the rental market being where it is today. I think, you know, last year because of interest rates and inflation and crime, 
we we had a tough year and inventory inventory was a huge problem we have such little inventory like the rest of the country and the majority of what's on the market needs work and nobody wants to renovate in this market so uh, a big part of this blockade if you will preventing inventory from flowing we believe is purchasers that feel kind of stuck they they bought and they had these great rates these historic low rates and whether they want to make a move or not they're having a difficult time reasoning how do i trade in this three three and a half four percent mortgage and you know rates have come down now uh, we've seen them go from just over eight to just under seven in the last 45 days or so uh, i assume that's that's part of what you're seeing on the ground of course. I mean, I thought that it would actually impact the starter home part of the market the most, um, but it's impacted the entire market, right? A lot of people aren't selling because they don't want to give up their 2 3 4% interest rate. What I will say is I'm seeing a lot of creative financing right now, and I'm seeing people getting five and a quarter rates, right? In New York City, majority of loans are going to be jumbo loans and the majority of what you hear in the news are not jumbo loans they're not rates for jumbo loans rates for jumbo loans tend to be lower there's also you know whether it's um politically or otherwise there is news and and chatter about the fed reducing rates another three times this year so that could help at the end of the day, people need to move. Um, there is also something in New York City, uh, in New York actually called a CEMA, C-E-M-A. And it is not something that most people are privy to, but I always look to see if the seller of a condo or a townhome has a mortgage. And if my buyer is getting a mortgage, there's a possibility that the banks will agree to do a CEMA. And what happens is, you as the buyer assume the balance of the seller's mortgage. And unfortunately, you don't get to assume their interest rate, but you save all of the closing costs. I just had somebody save $80,000 in closing costs doing a SEMA. And that allows you to buy down your rate, have more liquidity or whatever you want to do with it. So for those not familiar, it's essential that the acronym is Consolidation Extension and Modification Agreement. It's where exactly. you're taking the existing mortgage, they reapply a rate based on the new risk, uh, which can be higher or lower, and you're saving on the work that goes into the actual creation and underwriting of the loan. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. You're spot on. Okay, so you're seeing SEMAs, you're seeing creative financing. Where do you think rates need to be for the dam to kind of break? There's so much sideline money pent up. There are so many sellers pent up. Where do you think re rates need to get before we see that dam break and inventory start to flow again? So inventory is still an issue, um, but the buyers since January 1 have been out and people at the market is busy our, our open houses are seeing nine and ten groups come through where before they were dead um you know where do i think rates need to be i think every time they drop just a little bit 
people start to get it a little bit more excited. As far as inventory is concerned, you know, I don't think we're ever going to be at two and a half percent again, and people are going to have to learn to live with that. I don't know, honestly. I think if rates drop another point, I think we're going to see a lot more inventory. Yeah, I I agree. I think once we we crack six and we start the five, anything that starts with the five, I believe the floodgates are going to open and considering how much liquidity is on the sidelines and considering asset inflation that we're significantly leaning into and in forecasting um, along with now 40 year mortgages and uh, Fannie just dropped their guidelines on multifamilies from 20 to 5%, lowering interest rates and high liquidity feels like a recipe for a heck of a run in, in real estate. So, yeah. uh, you know, you've stayed for 15, 20 years in the top one and a half percent documented Wall Street Journal. That in the real estate business, that is very, very difficult to do, Kelly. What are some of the, the, the things that you think have been bedrock foundational points that you drive home with your team that has kept you at such a high level for so long? Look, I mean, in the beginning, I was scrambling and struggling like everybody else. I remember in 2005, looking in my coat pockets in my closet for spare change so I could go get something to eat at the bodega, you know? So, but you have to work hard and you have to stick with it. And it's all about building relationships and maintaining relationships and not being a transactional broker. And I think when there's a down market, we all have a tough time, but I think in order to thrive, you know, in that down market as much as you can, I, I consider it a skill market and my team and I learn new skills and we get creative and we try to figure out how to become better at what we do so that when the market turns around, we are armed with all of that new information and creativity. So I love the, the idea of being a lifelong learner. It's part of the culture here. Um, where are the resources? Where are you looking to find these skills? What are the things you guys are leaning into uh, to sharpen those skills, to learn how to be a better negotiator, how to cultivate relationships better, how to use the the systems? The digital world has really opened the game up and created some incredible opportunities for us to capitalize on now. So where does Kelly Where's your go-to source for that type of information? Or is it a host of different sources? It's a host of different sources. I do have a business coach. Um, and, you know, that that's very helpful. Even though I mentor my team members, I think it's important, right, for a coach to have a coach. And um, I'm very much into psychology. I also always try to give. So... I always try to give before I ask for something. And I actually don't ask for much from people. Um, I even, I, I asked for some reviews the other day and, and was like, I hate asking for things. I would rather serve you, but would you mind leaving me a review? Um, I just started my Google business page and, and whatnot. So, you know, I think it's very important and I'm a connector 
to try to give to people first, try to connect them to somebody who would be a good contact for them, try to give them something of value. And in turn, maybe they'll come back to you and do the same. And if not, karma will take care of it. It'll come from somewhere else. So as the game has changed, technology is becoming more and more uh, relevant just in our day-to-day -day lives and, and traditional deal makers. I've been in the business now almost 30 years. We didn't grow up with the technology that's available today, right? When I started, we had the MLS books and the little prospect cards, and then it went to the modem, and then it evolved and evolved and evolved. How much is technology playing a role in your day-to-day follow-up, client management, contact management? Is that a big piece of it today? Well, especially at Compass, yes, because we have a lot of artificial intelligence. We've got a lot of, you know, high-tech tools that we can use that make our jobs easier and more efficient. I will say I am a big fan of ChatGPT, although I think a lot of times what it comes up with is cheesy. So I tend to rewrite it. Um, but I do use for my listing descriptions, I will put in a description and I will say, I will, I will tell ChatGPT to rewrite this description optimized for Google, search engine optimized for Google with keywords. And I will keep those keywords in the top and it, it helps, it helps the property to rank higher um, in searches. So I think, you know, things like chat GPT, AI tools like that are fabulous. Um, you know, I think the, the ability, even though I would rather, much rather professionally, physically stage a property, the ability to you know, if somebody's got a home that doesn't show well with the furniture they have and they're not willing to stage, to be able to virtually stage a home, to show people another style, um, along with what it also looks like now, because I think that's really important to not fool people, is also just helps people who don't have a vision see past you know, maybe the furniture that's traditional in a modern space or what have you. Uh, I think, you know, I don't use chat GPT to respond to emails or or anything like that. I, I believe in being authentic and really um, coming from a place of empathy in every part of my transaction, because as you know, we're in a an emotional place you know, I, I know you you deal with a lot of commercial, but in residential, we're in a, a very emotional sector of the industry, and you really need to be able to empathize not only with your client but the other side to get a deal done with with negotiation te uh, techniques as well. Um, something I I I learned a lot from when um, you know studying Chris Voss's uh, techniques. So. Uh, I think I just went off on a tangent, but I think, you know, technology has really taken over and COVID changed that, as you know, our business was still so antiquated before COVID and now things are so much more streamlined and virtual and 
done faster, except for the, you know, 200 page board package <laughs> that I, that, that every year I donate to American forests, if they require it to be printed out 30 copies that they then scan and send via email to all of the board members. I love it. So <laughs> Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference, one of the, yeah. the, the better books, uh, amazing techniques, and finding that balance between the technology, which does tend to pull you away from that personal side of it, uh, but is just so essential in, in our tools today. You know, you've become known for this unique approach and being a super sharp negotiator, um, what are some of the tools that you're relying on in ensuring that you're getting the best deal for your client? Well, data. Data doesn't lie. Um, at the same time, if it's a unique property and there are multiple people interested and the data shows that it's worth a lower price, I believe that the market shows what the market will bear and a property is worth what somebody's going to pay for it. So if it goes above the asking price, that's what it's worth. Um, you know, but otherwise data and the fact that, you know, okay, is this an investment property, solely an investment property for you? Or is this going to be your home for the next 10 years? And does it matter if you pay a little bit extra now than you do later? I also understand that people have budgets and I never, ever suggest, unless somebody has the cash to pay and they're willing to do so, that somebody forego a contingency, a financing contingency to win a deal. I know a lot of people in my industry suggest that to their clients to win a deal. That is bad business, in my opinion. I think that is transactional and not relational. And, um, you know, I, I just think really caring about the the client and putting yourself in their shoes is the most important thing you can do. So those, that, those are some great points. And, and I, I want to spend a minute specifically talking about the finance contingency piece. So in super competitive market, folks, this has become standard practice where uh, deal makers are advising you drop a finance contingency and for the right buyer in the right financial circumstance at the right time, that can be a tactic or an approach that is wise. But we've seen this too, where deal makers are pushing folks that should not be dropping the finance contingencies to do that. And, and, and people can get hurt that way. So uh, it's no, surprised that you're having the success that you're having because you're leaning into the client you're not leaning into the transaction um, before we started the formal recording if you will you had mentioned uh, a referral that had come through a leasing transaction and a hundred million dollars in real estate later and i had a similar experience um with someone that it uh, upon the first meeting it felt like oh, why did i come out of here at seven o'clock on a friday night and it, it was darn near a hundred million in real estate later. Uh, it found to be, for me, it was one of the best meetings I had ever taken. Can you spend a minute or two talking about that? How important every call is and every lead is? Yes, I do not discriminate on price points. 
I am not one of those brokers who only takes over a certain amount of money. Um, I think that's stupid, to be honest. I did a favor for somebody uh, years ago where I had I hadn't formed a team yet. I had 11 listings. I had a ton of buyers. I had no time. I helped this girl rent a $2,500 apartment for free. Her mom was a good client of mine. Based on who came through that door and the other people that I met through that transaction, I have done over $80 million worth of business because I did that favor. And uh, I think I was telling you before, you know, I did a $385,000 deal and a $38 million deal in the same week. And both were equally as important to me. Of course, we all need to eat, right? And it's nice to be comfortable and make a lot of money, but that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is my clients and their happiness. So we, we've talked about that a lot. For the client, whether it's that 300,000 or that $38 million deal for them, it's the most important transaction they're likely ever going to be a part of. And if, if that's not enough to motivate you and get you excited to do a good job, you're probably in the wrong business, at least long-term, you're not going to make it here. Um, you've got a strong focus, obviously being in the city with co-ops, condos, townhomes. One of the big controversial topics has been Airbnbs. Can you speak a little bit about Airbnbs and the legislative changes that have occurred and how has that impacted the market? So I'm not as privy to the most recent legislative changes with regards to Airbnb, so shame on me, but I know that they're not, they're, they have not been legal um, and most buildings do not allow them. I mean, if you have a townhouse, that's one thing, but if you're in a condo or a co-op, it's not legal. And most condos and co-ops have restrictions of, um, you know, six to 12 month leases or more people do lease agreements. And, and, you know, you also have to be very wary of when you're looking on Airbnb for somewhere to stay in New York city. I had a listing and somebody stole the pictures of the listing and put it on Airbnb. And these people showed up at the building with their suitcases. I felt terrible for them. And they got scammed. They paid for an apartment that they couldn't stay in. Uh, my sellers were living there. They were not listing their home as an Airbnb. There are a lot of scammers out there. So with, with regards to Manhattan specifically, if you are looking for an Airbnb, be very wary. Very good advice. Um, I guess that's just part of the other side of this technology boom that we're seeing. Uh, crazy things are happening now that we're hearing about it regularly. You, you can't be cautious enough. So you, you've been smashing in New York City for 15, 20 years, and not even New York City can hold Kelly. So what's on the horizon? What's next? So I am getting licensed in Miami. I'm down there all the time. I have so many contacts down there who've been begging me to get my license. Um, I will work with a partner down there because I am not down there full time. And I think it's in the best interest of my clients to work with somebody who knows every neighborhood like the back of their hand. And so I will fly down and be there with them every step of the way. 
but I think it's important for them to be with an expert. Um, I am also getting licensed in Dubai in the spring. And, um, you know, at some point, my company Compass will be going international and Dubai is one of the places that they're considering. So um, I'm hoping I can get a head start on that. Again, I'll be working with a partner. I'm not going to be in Dubai every other week, you know, taking 20 hour, 16, 20 hour flights. But I do have a lot of clients and customers who are in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and other parts of the UAE and Middle East. And so it just makes sense. And it's a great resume builder. So the the Miami market, is is that a byproduct of some of the folks who have left or are splitting time from New York? Is that one of the landing places and why you have such a referral base there now? That's part of it. But the other part of it is that I, I am down there constantly. And I, uh, you know, at one point I was down there 50% of the time and I just have a lot of friends and contacts down there who are, you know, live down there full time who have not lived in New York City and they want to work with me. So, um, you know, I just decided it was the right thing to do. So the business is not all dollars and cents, as, as you have talked about. It's about relationships. It's about people. It's about philanthropic efforts. And from what I understand, you're, you're involved in a host of charities, but recently you had co-founded the Edward J. Robinson Scholarship. This is in conjunction or in honor of dad. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so the EJR Scholarship Fund, um, it gives scholarships to young rugby players. My father was a lifelong rugby player. Into his 60s, he played rugby. My poor mother did not grow fingernails until, you know, he finally agreed to stop because it's a rough game, but it's a great sport. And what I love about rugby is that it really teaches respect and respect for the other team. And I know most sports, you know, sportsmanship is a big deal, but I think in rugby, it's it's really emphasized even more. Um, my father was not only uh, one of the founding players of the New York Athletic Club, but he was also the president of multiple rugby clubs and um, later founded the youth program in the town I grew up in and then started the club program at the the high school I attended, which is now an official sport. So we have, we give two scholarships every year. We've given two to two girls. We've given two girl and a boy. We've given two, two boys. It depends on their application and it's not need-based as much as it is um, philanthropically based. We wanna see that people are doing things for others. And that rugby has taught them a lot about being a good human and having respect for other people, even if they're your opponent. Um, and, you know, my father was the type of person, and we found this out later after he passed away, who would sit by the hospital bed of a stranger and motivate them. And so when we see an applicant for our scholarship, who does something like that, that really gets to us and 
many times that's the person that gets the scholarship. So I, I can speak to this from personal experience. My son is a student at CBA uh, down in New Jersey and picked up rugby. And it, it became very apparent very quickly that they were producing men, they were producing leaders, and there was a camaraderie. Um, I played football most of my life when I was younger, and it, it was similar, but there was a, it's different. Mm -hmm. There is something special about that sport. Um, the respect, as you had said, for, of course, the team, but for the opposing team, and it just teaches you uh, life lessons in a way that I had not seen before in sports. So it, it's interesting to to watch. I was not intimately familiar with rugby. It wasn't really a thing when I was younger, at least nothing that I was exposed to. Uh, and it is taking my son on a whole different path in life. And it's really remarkable to watch. So kudos for, for you starting that and, and for providing scholarships. It's one of those sports that does need some help. And uh, it's great to see. Thank you. You're, well, congratulations to your son and yeah. good luck to him. Yeah, he's he's super excited. They won states two years in a row. So wow. you know, he's really leaned into it and it's become an amazing thing. It's great to see and, and wonderful coaches, parents, the whole program is tremendous. So what position does he play? So he's moved around. He was forward, then he was wing, scrum half. Uh, he's a sophomore now, so his body is changing quickly. And as he's, you know, filling out and working out in the gym, they're moving him around to different places. So he's having a lot of fun with it. That's great. So he's right in the middle there. Yeah. Oh, he likes <laughs> to be in the action, no doubt. <laughs> so look, you're, the the market, I, I believe we're headed to a place where We'll see several Fed cuts this year. It's a presidential cycle. Um, and, and I think sometimes people forget this is a cycle and there are external factors this time around that are different and unique that were brought on from COVID. Uh, but I do feel like we're headed into a real heck of a run. I think we've got a few year rip in front of us that's gonna be historic. Are there any resources or strategies or books or things that you would point folks to that are in the business to try and sharpen up as, as we get ready for what I believe is going to be a historic run? You know, a few books that are kind of old school that I always go back to are number one, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think that's a phenomenal book teaches a lot about empathy. It teaches a lot about talking to people about themselves instead of all about you. People want to talk about themselves and you build rapport when you learn about, and you learn about people. That's what you want to do. You want to learn about your clients and your customers. Um, also, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Phenomenal book. I suggest everybody try and become that connector because you will benefit and it will just make you feel good if nothing else to connect somebody to somebody that might help them. Yeah, those are um, absolutely foundational books and, and learning in this business 
that it, it's not about you and, and taking the time to listen and learn and engage will produce lifelong clients for you. Yeah. I also think Chris Voss's book, um, Never Split the Difference is phenomenal because he negotiates from a place of empathy. And if you're in residential real estate, I truly believe that's where you should, that's where you should be negotiating from a place of empathy. Yeah, and he was an uh, FBI hostage negotiator. Incredible experience. And he, he does boil it down in that book, mirroring and some of the tactics that he teaches, they work and people, people like to share uh, experiences about themselves, but there are things you can do to disarm them and get them to feel comfortable and engage. So um, this has been a great chat. I wish you all of the success in the world. Kelly, Where where's the best place for us to point people? Where can people find you? My website, www.kellyrobinsonnewyork.com, all spelled out, Kelly with a Y. Um, that's my, that's my real estate website. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Kelly Robinson, New York, or Kelly Minds Her Manners, Manners with an O. That's the name of my podcast. Um, so yeah. And you can message me on either, pla either platform. So as always, folks, all of the information and links will be below. Kelly Robinson, it's been a pleasure. Again, congratulations on the success. It's clear why you're the top one and a half agents or top one and a half percentage of agents in production in New York for 15 to 20 years running. Congrats and best of luck with your expansion in Miami and Dubai. Super exciting. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure was mine. As always, everyone, please stay safe.